Thank you, Jeff. It is a real pleasure to introduce my friend Colin Durier to you. Colin is one of the great scholars of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and he is a scholar in the old tradition of things that rather than being someone who looks up everything on Wikipedia and the internet, Colin spends most of his life in the deep recesses of the Bodleian Library and other places going through original documents and finding out things that people don't know yet. Uh, he is uh, in the United States because he is presenting a groundbreaking paper on the friendship between C.S. Lewis and Owen Barfield at a scholarly symposium in Indiana next week. But he has uh, come to be among us mere mortals uh, this morning uh, to share with us a little bit about the enduring significance of C.S. Lewis. I want to say a little bit about Colin's background. I first became aware of Colin when a friend of mine in England recommended this particular book, which I will highly recommend to you, uh, which is entitled Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, The Gift of Friendship. Uh, it is a really marvelous book about these two men written by Colin. Uh, it has been on the Portergaud summer reading list. It is one of the textbooks that we use in our C.S. Lewis seminar there. There also is another wonderful new book uh, called Bedeviled that came out last year, and the subtitle is Lewis, Tolkien, and the Shadow of Evil. Many of us think about the fact that we live in what seems like dark days often, and uh, Colin looks at the writings of Lewis and Tolkien in this book and what we might glean from that about how to live in an age where there is evil about. Uh, one of the things that is great about Colin is that he is extremely knowledgeable about the entire group of the Inklings, and uh, you could engage him in conversation for hours about any one of them and not run out of things to talk about. So uh, I'm going to quit talking about him and let him come and speak with us. But before that, let me open us with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Colin Durier and for the work of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and the Inklings. We thank you for their use of their mind and other gifts to express their faith in you. We pray that you would bless our time together this morning, that we would learn something that would help us to grow in our faith in you. We pray your blessing on Colin, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to be talking to a group of mere mortals. I'm one myself, so I feel quite at home. And my subject is um, C.S. Lewis for the ages. Um, in the years since his death over 50 years ago, the popularity of C.S. Lewis has continued throughout the world. It's not just in America, it's around the world. Sales have steadily risen with the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe alone selling over 85 copies globally. Now, I should have said 85 billion. Movies, TV, and radio versions of Narnia stories have added to his popularity. Why does he remain such a popular and so much loved author? What are some of the factors which shaped him and turned him from a relatively obscure poet and literary scholar to a writer of contemporary fiction for adults as well as children? and popular explanation of what he called mere Christianity. So let's look at C.S. Lewis for the ages. 
The first collection of Shakespeare's plays was published a few years after his death. And in a poem prefacing the, the collection, Ben Jonson wrote of Shakespeare as, quote, not of an age, but for all time. While I would never compare Lewis with Shakespeare, there is no reason why lesser writers cannot have some of the quality of work which transcends their age. I think Lewis has already transcended the matrix of his time in the last century, suggested by his pretty much global reception. I remember being stunned when I received through the post a beautiful Japanese edition of a guide I had, I had written to Lewis's Narnian stories. I was familiar with some of Japan's troubled past over its minority Christian communities, now thankfully truly past. Lewis had clearly received such a warm welcome in Japan that even my mere guide to his Narnia books had a place in his bookshops and libraries. Screwtape the Academic Devil and Aslan the Talking Lion and Divine Creator of Narnia are just a few of the inventions of Clive Staples Lewis, born two years before the opening of the 20th century and dying over 50 years ago. From his teeming mind and imagination sprang stories and powerful rhetoric aimed at, per pe at persuading people of spiritual truths that have dimmed in today's materialistic culture uh, climate. For many years an atheist, Jack Lewis as he, he was called, didn't become a Christian believer until halfway through his life. Not only have his books steadily taken on a global popularity, but he was reluctantly one of the first major media evangelists, with huge audiences for his wartime BBC radio broadcasts. And the media have not ignored him. As you will know, there have been two film versions of Shadowlands, the story of his love and marriage to a New York poet and novelist, Joy Davidman Gresham, and movies of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and other Narnia stories. Now, to give some context, some brief words about his life. And by the way, Lewis didn't like his first names, Clive Staples. That's why he chose to be known to his friends and family as Jack. The Jack of two trades was equally a scholar and a storyteller poet. The story of his early life, his conversion from atheism to Christianity, and his awareness of joy and longing for a fulfillment outside of his own self, is told in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, and in his allegory, The Pilgrim's Regress. Lewis was born in, 19, in 19, uh, sorry, 1898 in the north of Ireland, in Belfast, and spent a happy childhood with his older brother Warren, his enormously talented mother Flora, his solicitor father Albert, and his beloved nurse Lizzie Endicott, and various maids. He loved the countryside of County Down, which along with other parts of Northern Ireland, in later years helped to inspire the geography of Narnia. His life changed dramatically when cancer claimed his mother in 1908. Their father never got over the loss, and relations between father and sons became more and more strained as time went on. Only, week after, only weeks after Flora's death, Jack Lewis was sent off to England to a small school 
later dubbed by him Belson. This title seems no great exaggeration. The brutal headmaster was several years later certified insane. In 1910, Jack was moved first to Campbell College in Belfast and next year to Sherbrooke House in Malvern and later Malvern College in Worcestershire. These private boarding schools are called public schools in Britain. His brother Warren wrote in his memoir in Letters to C.S. Lewis, the fact is he should never have been sent to a public school at all. Already at 14, his intelligence was such that he would have fitted in better among undergraduates and schoolboys. And by his temperament, he was bound to be a misfit, a heretic, an object of suspicion within the collective-minded and standardizing public school system. Characteristically, Jack wrote his first article for a school magazine with the title, Are Athletes Better Than Scholars? He was never happy until he was finally sent to a private tutor in the village of Bookham in, in southern England. The, the tutor was called W.T. Kirkpatrick an Ulsterman who taught him to think rigorously and tutored him for entrance to Oxford University. His private tutorage under W.T. Kirkpatrick was one of the happiest periods of his life. Not only did he rapidly mature and grow under the stringent rationality of his teacher, but he discovered the beauty of the English countryside and fantasy writers such as William Morris. Full of the discovery of George MacDonald's fantasy fantastes, Lewis wrote about its power to Arthur Greaves, a lifelong Ulster friend. He wrote in 1915, Of course, it is hopeless for me to try to describe it, but when you had followed the hero Anodos along the little stream of the fairy wood, have heard about the terrible ash tree, and heard the episode of Cosmo, I know you will agree with me. In, in his uh, memoir, Surprised by Joy, Lewis describes the effect as baptizing his imagination. This was many long years before he came to Christian belief. His Oxford studies were interrupted by action in World War I, the Great War, as it's sometimes called, which cast its shadow over Lewis's newfound peace. Warren, that's his, his brother Warren was uh, always called Warney, was already on active duty. Lewis did officer training at university and spent his 19th birthday on the front line. In spring 1918, Lewis was wounded in action and eventually discharged after, her long, after a long spell in hospital. During all this time, he had been writing poetry and preparing a book of poems, Spirit in Bondage, for publication. At the front, he, lost, he had lost a billet mate called Paddy Moore. Before his death, Lewis had promised him that should anything happen to him, he would take care of Paddy's widowed mother, sorry, not widowed mother, his, his, um, his, his um, mother and his sister, who was separated from, from her husband. Lewis, in fact, looked after Mrs. Janie Moore, a single parent, until her death in 1951. It is possible, but I think unlikely, that he had an affair with her, as argued without conclusive evidence by his biographer, A.N. Wilson, and others. 
Lewis's brother Warney joined the Kilns household in, in Oxfordshire on the edge of Oxford City in the 1930s after retiring early from the British Army. Lewis was remarkably patient with his adopted mother as he thought of her, but Warren increasingly found her a thorn in the flesh, to put it mildly. By 1923, Lewis had confirmed his remarkable intellectual gifts by gaining a triple first-class degree at Oxford University. But that by, the time, by that time, he was already deep in what he, also, he called a great war with his friend Owen Barfield, a dialogue which greatly shaped his thinking and his life. The sustained conflict helped to erode Lewis's atheism. He won a temporary lectureship in philosophy for a year at University College Oxford after years of financial struggle, much of the struggle being to do with supporting Mrs. Moore and her daughter Maureen. Then Magdalen College in 1925 appointed him as a fellow, lecturing and tutoring in English. He was an Oxford Don until 1954 when Cambridge University invited him to the new, newly founded chair of medieval and Renaissance literature, which was more or less tailored for him. Lewis described himself in his inaugural lecture as an old Western man, not referring to the prairies of America, of course. He also described himself as a dinosaur, referring to his resistance to modernism. Lewis's pupils over the years included such figures as the critic Kenneth Tynan, the poet John Betjeman, and the novelist and poet John Wayne, W-A-I-N, not to be confused with the movie star. Now, a little bit about Tolkien, who played such an important part in Lewis's life. In the early Oxford days, Tolkien also became one of Lewis's lifelong friends. They would criticize one another's poetry, drift into theology and philosophy, and pile pun upon pun, or talk English to politics. Tolkien's deep friendship with Lewis was of great significance to both men. Tolkien found in Lewis an appreciative audience for his burgeoning stories and poems of Middle-earth, a good deal of which was not published until after his death. Without Lewis's encouragement over many years, The Lord of the Rings would probably have never appeared in print, as those of you who were able to come along last Friday will already know. Lewis equally had cause to appreciate Tolkien. His views on myth and imagination and the relation of both to reality helped to convince Lewis, who had not long before been a convinced atheist of the truth of Christianity, seeing mind to mind on both imagination and the truth of Christianity was the foundation of their remarkable friendship. The Inklings, the group of literary friends around Lewis, grew out of this rapport between Lewis and Tolkien. Ayn Wilson, in his biography of Lewis, remarks that at the very beginning of the association between Lewis and Tolkien that, in his words, it must have seemed clear to him at once that Tolkien was a man of literary genius. On Tolkien's side, thinking with sadness in 1929 of his, some domestic difficulties, wrote, friendship with Lewis compensates for much. Because Tolkien, along with another friend, Hugo Dyson, helped to force Lewis to reconsider the claims of Christianity, he was cornered. 
The movement of Lewis's thinking at this time is vividly captured in his book, Miracles, which is one of my favorite books by Tolkien, by Lewis, I mean. He later, Lewis later confessed, I have never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter, or so it seemed to me, and I was the deer. He stalked me like a redskin, took unerring aim, and fired. And I am very thankful that that is how the first conscious meeting occurred. It forearms one against subsequent fears that the whole thing was only wish fulfillment. Something one didn't wish for can hardly be that. His encounter with God took definite shape in coming to believe that Christ was the Son of God, as told in the first century Gospels, which was a slow process of development in his thinking and uh, beliefs. Another significant friendship was forged in 1936 when Lewis, uh, when Lewis read Charles Williams's novel, The Place of the Lion, while Williams was reading the proofs of Lewis's book, The Allegory of Love, for Oxford University Press, where he was a senior editor. The two men exclaimed, le exchanged letters and soon met up, with, with Williams being introduced to the Inklings group. Williams was to have an enormous impact on, on Lewis's writings and thinking. Now, where's the matter of success? If success had been what Lewis was after, he, he had it all by his, by his early 40s. His broadcast talks during the war, and the publication in particular of the Screwtape Letters, had made him perhaps the highest profile Christian communicator of his time in Britain. His fame was soon going to spread to the USA. A reporter from Time magazine had been in Oxford in 1944, researching a feature on him, interviewing, among other of his friends, Charles Williams. That story eventually appeared as a cover feature on the 8th of September, 1947, taking as its angle the Screwtape Letters and entitled Don versus Devil. The writer was unable to fathom the mystery of Lewis's domestic situation with Mrs. Moore, no doubt because of the silence of his friends. From that point, Lewis's popularity in the United States, which was already growing, took off and it has been higher here than is in his own country ever since. Though Lewis was not enamored by the time feature, it is worth quoting a little bit of it because of its um, um, importance and generosity to Lewis. Just a brief extract. The lecturer, a short, thick-set man with a ruddy face and a big voice, was coming to the end of his talk, gathering up his notes and books, he tucked his horn-rimmed spectacles into the pocket of his tweed jacket and picked up his mortarboard. Still talking, to the accompaniment of occasional appreciative laughs and squeals from his audience, he leaned over to return the watch he had borrowed from a student in the front row. As he ended his final sentence, he, stopped, he stepped off the platform. The maneuver gained him a head start on the rush of students down the center aisle. Once in the street, he strode rapidly, his black gown billowing behind his grey flannel trousers to the nearest pub for a pint of ale. And, it, and Time magazine also commented, like another eloquent and very witty popularizer of Christianity, the late G.K. Chesterton, he has a talent for putting old-fashioned truths into a modern idiom. 
And you can get that article if you, if you Google carefully. Um, it's available online and it's well worth reading. A little bit about a dedicated fan. One of Lewis's new fans in America crossed the Atlantic. It was usually by ocean liner in those days to see him by hook or by crook. Her name was Helen Joy Davidman and they met in 1952. They had corresponded for some time. She was a novelist, a novelist poet and poet who had been converted from atheism and Marxism to Christianity, partly through reading Lewis's books. When she was free to remarry and was dying of cancer, Lewis married her in a Christian ceremony in 1957. Previously, they had had a register office wedding to provide her with British citizenship for her protection of that of her sons. And I could talk a lot about the impact of Joy Davidman upon him. Some recent books come out um, on that if you want to, to read them, bi biographies and studies. But I want to get on to Lewis's potent spell, Why is he for the ages? What is the secret of the great spell that Lewis has cast around the globe? As well as the spirituality of his, the Chronicles of Narnia, attractive in our postmodern age, in a less successful science fiction called That Hideous Strength, he elsewhere presents a powerful critique of what he saw as the modern form of magic, that is, the domination of the machine. Unlike the ideas of modernism, this social and mechanical domination is, is for Lewis more tenacious. Bureaucracy can be a form of a mechanical mindset. And Lewis re-envisioned hell in this way in his The Screwtape Letters. The dominance of the machine, of course, is a powerful motif in the contemporary imagination. Lewis's popularity might, might lie in four main factors. In the first place, of course, he's a great storyteller. The Chronicles of Narnia are powerfully accomplished stories rooted in the central elements of the fairy story. Storytelling for Lewis is universal, and stories of myth, legend, and popular folktale contain archetypes or universal elements, like the motives of the quest and the journey. His relatively unknown um, but accomplished novel, Till We Have Faces, retells an ancient myth of Cupid and Psyche in classical times to explore deep human themes of love and affection, the twisting of good things by evil, and the ending of self-deception. It has some affinities with William Golding's unfinished final novel, The Double Tongue, exploring dimensions beyond the material world and hints of an as-yet-unknown God. Secondly, Lewis's stories are often given many dimensions by his extensive creation of another secondary world, such as Narnia or the planet Terralandra, which we know as Venus. Though Lewis did not, however, produce anything as detailed and mentally inhabitable as Tolkien's Middle-earth, he has given us Narnia. In terms of children's literature, the chronicles of Narnia have long established themselves as classics of popular culture, like The Wind in the Willows, The Hobbit, Winnie the Pooh, Alice in Wonderland, and more recently, the Harry Potter stories. Underpinning the chronicles of Narnia is Lewis's friend Tolkien's carefully worked out idea of sub-creation, the creation of a secondary world in which the human maker imagines God's world after him. For Tolkien, the moral and spiritual world is as real as the physical world. Indeed, each is part of one creation, 
and a, a successful sub-creation like the world of Middle-earth captures them all in an organic whole. The result is an image of reality that is making claim to a certain kind of reliable knowledge. The idea of crafting a secondary world, a possible world, applies far beyond fantasy. Any story, even a novel set in the real world, if it is any good at all, creates a possible world. It is then a big metaphor. Metaphors, of course, speak of one th thing by another. Just to be very basic, in the familiar proverb, love is blind, blindness illuminates an aspect of love, even though they're totally different things until you have that metaphor. If Tolkien is correct, the world created by the story is intentionally about something other than itself, shedding insights into the very nature of reality. Tolkien's idea helped Lewis to articulate his own notions about the nature of story and the kinds of atmosphere or tone that a story can create. The vividness and depth of this subcreated world undoubtedly reinforces the appeal of the Narnian and other stories. Lewis's richly invented worlds open up possibilities, hopes, and dreams. He helps to formulate in his readers a sense of disenchantment with our secular culture, or rather, a hunger for re-enchantment. His emphasis is positive, not life-denying. People today have an uneasy sense that there are dimensions to life untapped by our materialist culture, and that most of us are missing these dimensions. In the third place, as I hinted already, Lewis intended some of his stories, at least, to sound a warning about the consequences of abandoning what he called Old Western or Old European values. Even though using the mode of fantasy, he realistically portrays the processes of evil in ordinary life. The drama of salvation and damnation is worked out in seemingly unremarkable lives in the Screwtape Letters. In Lewis's science fiction, That Hideous Strength, we encounter a demonic attempt to draw a young university lecturer, probably partly based upon um, Lewis as a young Don, uh, uh, attempts to draw him uh, in, into unspeakable evil by exploring his personal flaws and weaknesses. Lewis's fiction appears to belong with several other prophetic 20th century stories, including George Orwell's Animal Farm and 1984, William Golding's The Lord of the Flies, and Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, in reshaping contemporary fiction to come to terms with the horror of palpable evil revealed, for example, in modern global warfare and ideological control. Like his friend Tolkien, Lewis saw the New West as dominated by the machine and the machine as the modern form of magic. Lewis saw a machine attitude or technocracy as evil or dark magic in modern guise. Like the magician, modern technocrats desire to oppress and possess nature rather than to work with and shape her like artists treat their materials. In his philosophical book, The Abolition of Man, Lewis gives theoretical expression to themes and motifs running through both his and Tolkien's fiction, The Misuse of Magic, a theme also powerfully explored, as I said, in uh, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter stories. In the fourth place, also hinted at earlier, Lewis's popularity may lay in the fact that he presents an attractive spirituality that appeals to a broad readership 
seeking new meaning and spiritual fulfillment in a greatly secularized world. Both Lewis's and Tolkien's spirituality was of great importance in their creations of other worlds like Narnia and Middle-earth. Both friends, for instance, were deeply inspired by a broad range of spiritual imagery like trees, angels, the fall of humankind, the power of healing, the personification of wisdom, light and darkness, nature and grace, and biblical portrayal of heroism and evil. Tolkien saw a fundamental quality of good fantasy or fairy story as consolation. This was part of the argument he used to convince Lewis to become a Christian believer. Here grace, the presence, will, and mind of God, enters story. The story of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ has all the features of the best stories as a result of a divine shaping of real historical first century events. The fairy story, Tolkien believed, is at the heart of human story telling, whether of Northern Europe or of the classical world or elsewhere. The concept of fairy had been mutilated. Tolkien sought to rehabilitate it, as did Lewis, both in their scholarship and in their own storytelling. Key to their endeavor was to make fantasies and fantasy myth for an adult readership. Here's a few more reasons for Lewis's enduring popularity. There's a lot of them. Um, hopefully I'll be able to get through at least the main ones. For once, Lewis, for one, Lewis had a highly eclectic imagination. Screwtape, Puddleglum, the Marshwiggle, Elwyn Ransom, the Cambridge Don, Aslan, the maker of, Middle of, uh, of Narnia, Sarah Smith of Golders Green, Mr. Sensible, Redival of Ancient Gloam, Jane and Mark Studdock of the English Midlands. These are some of Lewis's wide-ranging characters. From his teeming mind and imagination sprang stories and powerful rhetoric aimed at persuading people of the truth of Christian faith. His many years as, as an atheist helped um, Lewis to understand from the inside what a materialist universe looked, tasted, and smelt like. His book, Mere Christianity, appeals to the reader's imagination as much as to their uh, intelligence. And this was certainly the experience I had with Mere Christianity was the first book that I read of Lewis. The second reason is to perhaps state the obvious, his enduring contribution to children's literature with his Narnian Chronicles. And there are even further reasons which, which might explain Lewis's wide and enduring appeal, not always known to his popular readership. He was a major literary scholar with works such as The Allegory of Love, English Literature in the 16th Century Excluding Drama, that got him off covering Shakespeare, and An Experiment in Criticism, all of which are still in print despite the fact that there are inevitably points of contention, such as his treatment of humanism and the Renaissance, and his thesis that the watershed in Western civilization was reached early in the 19th century, not in the 16th century. Also, he, as, as I've said, he was an outstanding apologist or defender of Christian faith who made the cover of Time magazine. Also, he was a popular theologian, and he was part of a group at that time of popular theologians, which included Dorothy Alsayers, the, the mystery writer, um, T.S. Eliot even, and, and others, such as G.K. Chesterton, who was a little bit earlier. He was, as a popular theologian, 
Lewis was able to convey biblical themes convincingly with wit, imagination, and clarity. His theology is embedded in his fictional works like The Pilgrim's Regress, The Screwtape Letters, The Narnian Chronicles, and his science fiction trilogy. It is also found, of course, in his Mere Christianity, his book Miracles, his study Reflections on the Psalms, a late book called Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, and The Problem of Pain, which was on my reading list when I was um, studying some philosophy of religion at university. Lewis arguably was also a mainstream science fiction author, earning the respect of leaders in the genre such as Arthur C. Clarke and Brian Aldiss. The first two volumes of his Ransom trilogy are particularly celebrated. And we can go on. He was a novelist who showed a promise that was cut short by illness and his comparatively early death. Till We Have Faces is one of his greatest books, a narrative set several hundred years BC in an imaginary but realistic country somewhere north of Greece. And it's, it's one of his books which has the most affinity with Tolkien in being set in a pre-Christian world. And also, uh, Lewis was a thinker who early in his academic career was part of a discussion group with young Oxford philosophers that also included Gilbert Ryle. He taught philosophy for a year in Oxford before entering his teaching career as an English don there. His The Problem of Pain, Miracles, and the Abolition of Men, a Man, are serious philosophical texts, the first two being aimed at the general reader. And I can still go on. Not, I won't go on too long, don't worry. He was a poet, though a minor one. And I think this is one of the really central features of what makes C.S. Lewis tick, use a, a mechanical term he would hate. His work ranged from lyrics to long and currently rather unfashionable narrative poems. His early ambition was to be a major poet. His first volume was published at the age of 21, but he increasingly found himself out of kilter with modern verse. He was disappointed by his failure to be elected as Oxford Professor of Poetry in 1951. His poetic sensibility, however, inspired all his prose, whether discursive or fictional, and is a secret of its attractiveness. This side of him is so important that um, I, could, I could talk for an hour about um, the importance of his poetry, how it affected his style, how it affected his writing, how it affected his thinking, and the kind of choices he made in life, particularly later in life when he decided to move more towards writing imaginative literature rather than discursive um, texts like uh, Mere Christianity and so on. He, he was so much of a poet that, that a friend of his who was a distinguished poet called Ruth Pitter uh, asked him if she could turn some sections of his science fiction story, Perilandra, into verse. And he said he was very happy for her to do that. And that she did. She wrote a number of stanzas based upon some of the paragraphs. And it just emphasizes the fact of how poetic his prose is. It's a bit like the fact that William Wordsworth used to um, use sections of his sister's, uh, sister Dorothy's journals to turn into poetry, like the famous poem to the daffodils, based upon the poetic praise, uh, prose of his sister Dorothy. So these are interesting matter, um, issues. And I can say, and people sometimes ask this, why do you carry on writing about Lewis and his friends and so on when you get fed up with it? In fact, I, when I was an undergraduate, somebody asked me why I, I, I was so interested in fantasy literature. And I, I can say that I never tire of reading him or his friends with whom he shares an affinity, such as Tolkien and Charles Williams and others. Anyway, thank you very much.
time for a couple of questions if anyone has a question about any. Well, I've been intrigued by Lewis's use, use of Turkish elements because I spent two years studying at the University of Istanbul in Turkey when I left school, high school. Um, and it is a mystery. But when you think of Lewis's context, he'd, he'd already been uh, sharing Oxford life for uh, several months before he went, he was posted over to the Western Front. So he would have had all kinds of conversations with all kinds of people who had all kinds of interests. Um, I don't know how much he would have known about the Ottomans. Um, he didn't take a terrible, terribly deep interest in world affairs. Um, but um, well, it's intriguing that he has the Turkish delight and also that Aslan is Turkish for lion. Um, one of the things that's really thrilled me is that when I, when I was in Istanbul, um, none of his works were translated into Turkish. And in fact, I went with a friend to, um, to a, mission, a mission house in Istanbul asking if they would translate the Narnian Chronicles into Turkish, but um, they didn't get anywhere. But now they're all available in Turkish. And in fact, a friend of mine who I knew from that time who, who still works in mission in Turkey and Middle Eastern countries and so on, asked me if he, if he could do a Turkish edition of my guide to Narnia. And so that is in Turkish, which is incredibly thrilling to me because it was beyond anything I could have imagined. Um, so you have Aslan and Tashlan, um, you know, the mixture of um, Aslan and the, the god Tash. Um, people have criticized Lewis because of the way he portrays the Kalamins, um, you know, saying it's kind of like a, an ugly stereotype of um, Islam. But I think it's much more subtle that um, Lewis was a medievalist and the Islam was, and, and Christian civilization were, were, were often at loggerheads, but not always. I mean, in Spain, you had, you had um, uh, Muslims and Christians um, uh, working together, and if you look at the architecture there and everything. So it's quite a complex picture, but I'm, I'm very pleased that he did. And um, um, to, when I had a launch of one of my, of my book in, in, in England, we, we had Turkish Delight available for, um, <laughs> for the people coming along. So we got a good number to the book launch because of that. I haven't really answered your question very well, but that's as, that's as far as I know. Um, I can't go any further than that, really. Well, I think it's, it's much more bloody today than it was even in Lewis's time. But he was very aware of the, the changes that were taking place in the culture. That's one of the reasons why he agreed to do the broadcast talks for the BBC. Um, I'm, I don't want to knock um, theologians in any way, but they were looking for somebody that could communicate with ordinary listeners. And they, they looked at various theologians, but they, they decided to go for Lewis instead because he'd written this book called The Problem of Pain. Um, and um, one of the reasons he did it, he was aware that people didn't, didn't have the knowledge of, of Christian belief that they'd had, say, at the time when he was a child. And, and needed, we needed some serious um, um, inculcation of, of Christian belief in a way that would win people. And that's why he worked so hard to communicate. When he started off, he would, the RAF asked him to give lectures to airmen that were going off to their deaths mostly. And he, he found it really difficult. He realized how, uh, it, that he wasn't communicating very well. But he worked very, very hard to learn how to communicate. And I think we need to do that even more now. We mustn't fall into subcultures and everything, but we must interact with the, with the, um, the, the wider world. And it's not just a secular world of people like Richard Dawkins. But a lot of my friends are New Age people uh, and you, we need to interact with people who are into new age in its variety. Lots of people are attracted by Buddhism, a kind of Western form of Buddhism, uh, you know, and all these things. So we, we need what, something Lewis said. He said 
he wanted to go where the, the battle line was the thinnest, and, um, um, and, and that's what he did, and that's what his friends did. Uh, consciously, un unconsciously, I don't know. This is a big, big source of contention about how you, um, how you characterize their friends and whether they were um, um, a combative group trying to, trying to change the whole of culture or whether they were just friends that were interested in, in, in the importance of Christianity and so on. I don't know whether that answers your question, but... Well, part of it is just to do with my own history that I read. When I, when I, when I came across um, Mere Christianity, we were reading it in a class in, 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 in the grammar school, and uh, I was attracted by Lewis. So at that time, I, if I found an author I liked, I decided to read everything I could of what they'd written. I had no idea that Lewis had written so much, or he'd written tomes like... Um, the Oxford History of English Literature on, on the, uh, the 16th century, excluding drama. Um, and um, Miracles was one that I came across quite soon after Mere Christianity. And um, I, liked, I liked it because the early section dealt with the presuppositions. It goes through the self-refuting nature of, of, of naturalism, by which he meant that nature was a whole... People believed that nature was a whole show. And he was pointing out that if, if um, our thoughts are just based on on uh, causal events in our brains, then um, there's no way that you could say that they could be true or false. They would, you know, you could have somebody who's um, demented having thoughts in their head, and they, their, their thoughts would be created by the, what was firing away in their brain. And, and even somebody like Bertrand Russell, you'd say, well, his thoughts are only just the result of what's firing in his brain. And, um, and then after preparing the ground uh, and really attacking the question of plausibility, in a way, um, he, he, he brought in the New Testament documents. And, and I think he was, um, and life of Christ and so on, and the miracles of the old creation and the new creation. And, and I just like that so much because I've always felt that the foundation of Christian belief is the fact that it's based upon actual events in the first century. It's not just a philosophical system, although it actually is a very beautiful philosophical system. But that's not enough. You can create a philosophical system that's beautiful, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And the fact that Christianity is grounded in actual events, um, we have Jesus as the witness of history. Um, you know that I just love the way that Lewis did that. And there's so much. There's so much in the text of what he says about the nature of the relationship between thinking and imagination, which is something that I've struggled with all my life since then. It's such a big, a big question. An important question. That's what I'll be talking about next week, which is uh, you know, when we're talking about Barfield and Lewis, because that's what they were always discussing, the relationship between thinking and imagination. Well, we are out of time, so Oops. let's thank Colin one more time. <laughs>